Welcome to Tucker Talks, where your host Mel Tucker goes all in. From music to moguls, culture to cuisine, and ball, ball, ball. And now, Renaissance man and overall good guy, Michigan State head football coach, Mel Tucker. Welcome to Tucker Talks. I'm Mel Tucker, and we're talking via video chat with former NASCAR driver and author, Bill Lester. There he is. Hey, Mel. <laughs> How you man, doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Hey, it's, I'm just hanging out over here, man. I've been looking forward to this. I'm glad you could you could get on with me. And uh, welcome to Tucker Talks, man. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. How you doing? How's the family? Everybody's safe. Everybody's doing well. If you hear rumbling in the background, it's not my stomach. It's uh, the weather outside. We got thunderstorms <laughs> here in oh, Georgia. So, yeah. But everybody's good here at the house. That's great, man. That's great. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. I wanted to 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 start by um, just trying to go back to when you got hooked on racing. I read where you were. Um, you grew up in the Bay Area, and and you were taken to a, a race. And at some point, you just felt like you knew that's what you wanted to do. Can you take us back to that? Yeah, absolutely. So I was just shy of eight years old, and I had an obsession with cars as a kid. I was, my parents told me I never went anywhere without a matchbox or a Hot Wheels in my hand. So just love cars, you know, and yeah. love speed. Anything that was fast, I loved doing, you know, roller coasters or, you know, just whatever involved speed and excitement and adrenaline, I was all about yeah. it. And so my father knew about my love of cars and he thought, hmm, it'd be pretty cool to take, him, take me out yeah. there and take me to a real race. And so that's exactly what he did. He found out from a friend of his that there was a race up in Monterey, Laguna Seca, not too far oh. from where we were living in San Jose. And yeah. so he took me to a race there. And I mean, these cars were blowing by at 160, 170 <laughs> miles an hour. And I mean, I was just infatuated. I was intoxicated. I was blown away. I just never saw anything like that. You know, I mean, it's one thing to see cars running on the street. And it's another yeah. thing to see, you know, be on the freeway, whatever, yeah. 60, 70 miles an hour. But to have these cars with all that sound, all that speed, all those smells, you know, from oil and gas and brakes and all that, it was intoxicating to me. And so when I saw that, I was like, you know what, I would love to be able to do that. But I didn't know if it was real, you know, it was a real dream. It was a real possibility because yeah. nobody who looked like me was there. <laughs> track. It was my father right. and I. And everybody right. else, was, you know, them, right? And so uh, right. when I was so young, I wasn't really tripping off of that. I just knew that, yeah. you know, I got basically caught by the hook. I was hooked right then, you know? So fast forward a few years, got my driver's license and it was game on, you know, it was <laughs> before it was a movie. I mean, I was doing all sorts of things illegally that I don't condone. Right. But <laughs> right, I, right, I, right. Of course. I just love cars. I love going fast and yeah. did all kinds of crazy things. Got my first car when I was 18, fixed it all up and then started really doing some serious street racing. Cause before that I was goofing around with my parents' car, but when I got my own car, I was modifying it, you know, aftermarket wow. shocks and springs and sway bars and high performance tires and lowering it. I put a roll bar in it. I mean, fire extinguisher. I was serious for my street car. right? And I was up in the skyline Hills of Oakland because our family moved from San Jose to Oakland by then. Okay. And I was just terrorizing, you know, Skyline Drive, Skyline Boulevard, which is, you know, just a, it's kind of like the equivalent of like Mulholland Drive in mm -hmm. LA, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a very, very, you know, uh, dangerous, undulating turns, twists, and kind of, you know, track that or street that if you go off, there's going to be some, uh, <laughs> some very serious consequences. It's going to be a problem. <laughs> and, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I started getting, kind of getting a reputation as being pretty good up there. And then somebody mm. said, listen, 
before you kill yourself or somebody else, take it to a racetrack. And I'm like, okay, well, how do you get to a racetrack, right? You got to have a car to get there and you got to have money if you got to have a car to get to a racetrack because mm. my street car wasn't going to be something that was adequate for a racetrack. Mm. I had to buy a real race car, you know, one that was, Ill, you know, not legal for the streets, gutted interior mm. and, you know, just uh, everything set up for racing, no creature comforts, that sort of thing. And so um, I was like, okay, so how do you buy a race car? Well, you obviously got to be able to afford it. So that's what took me on my journey of getting an engineering degree from Cal Berkeley. I have an electrical engineering computer science degree from Cal. You know, and I when, did I read, that. when I read that, Bill, when I read that, I was surprised because is that the normal route that drivers take? No, Mel, that's not how it usually works. Usually what happens is these kids are given a go-kart or a quarter midget or some sort of, you know, mini racing vehicle mm -hmm. in their single digit years, right? So if you're six or seven, eight years old, you go out there and you got a go-kart, you know, that sort of thing. And so that was not the environment I was brought up in. My parents sure. thought, you know, racing. You know, right. it's great that we exposed you to it, but we're not supporting that. You're going to have to find your own ways and means to be able to support that kind of racing fetish but or habit. So, you know, that's what the engineering degree was uh, for, because I wanted to just find out what the quickest occupation I could get to and make good money in was. And, you know, typically you think of doctor, lawyer, something like that, that takes, you know, postgraduate work or, you yeah. know, internship and that sort of thing. And I knew that, you know, if I got my butt kicked for four years at Cal, I could come out there and go straight into, you know, the high tech sector because it was kind of yeah. like the boom of Silicon Valley. And mm. so since I was right there in Northern California and, you know, the Valley was right, right around the corner, that's sure. exactly what I did. I got that four-year degree and went to work for Hewlett Packard Company. And effectively with that first paycheck, I bought a real race car. So I'm 22 <laughs> years old. I'm not eight years old, you know, running around in a car in a race car, you know, wow. going to my teens racing. I'm 22. So I'm already old. Right. So but I found out I loved it. My first year I was Northern California Rookie of the Year. And wow. then um, the next year I was Northern California Road Racing Champ for my class. And I thought immediately the doors of corporate America and race teams, you know, were going to be opening and that, you know, I'd be going straight from tech to professional racing and nothing could be further from the truth. I wound up having a 15-year career in the high-tech industry before I left to really pursue my passion and my love, which was racing. So wow. you're probably wondering how I was able to do that, right? Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. So you were working in tech and yeah. racing at the on same the weekend. time. On the on weekend. weekends. I was living for the weekends, you know, basically <laughs> glorified, you know, road warrior, trying to get out there and do what I really love to do. Even though I was good at engineering, I just didn't love it, right? It's not what I wanted to do with my life. I felt I was given a gift, you know, and it yeah. was up to me to realize it and to mm -hmm. see it through. And so while I worked, you know, the eight to five and being successful by everybody else's definition but my own, I just wasn't fulfilled. I wasn't happy. And that's how I define success. It's not how much money you make, you know, it's just how fulfilled you are, how happy you are. That's and great. so I left that to pursue going racing full time. I got married in 94, and with my wife's blessing and support, she said, listen, one, you're not getting any younger, and two, you're not getting any easier to live with, not doing what you want to do. Go and try to put all your attention and your time and effort into it to see if you can make that dream a reality. And that's what we decided to do. I took a leave of absence initially from HP to pursue racing, and the door started opening up, and I started gaining some traction and what have you. And so after six months, I told HP, Thanks for the memories. I'm going to, you know, continue. <laughs> and I consider that I, those three years that we set aside 
I was gainfully unemployed. What I mean by that is I wasn't getting a paycheck, but I was happy with the pursuit of trying to become a professional race car driver. Something that, you know, by all accounts, I shouldn't have been able to do because, you know, here I am at 37 years of age, leaving something that I was quote unquote successful at to do something where I didn't know if I was going to make it. I mean, I took a bold leap of faith. I just jumped in with both feet. And wow. sure enough, I became a full-time professional race car driver in NASCAR in 2002. And so, I mean, I had a good career in NASCAR. I enjoyed it. But looking back on it all, I wouldn't have changed the thing. Man, that is fascinating. Was there any, was there any carryover from your eight to five tech job into the NASCAR business? Did you, was there well, anything that you could take from that or? Well, you know, one thing I could really take from it is that when I came into NASCAR, it was kind of like the advent of technology into the NASCAR arena. Mm. And what I mean by that is that traditionally, the crew chief who makes, you know, all the adjustments, who tells the crew to make all the adjustments to the vehicle, he just goes by what the driver says, right? So technology had not entered NASCAR until the, right, the early 2000s, right, when I came on the scene. And at that time, telemetry and instrumentation and all those sorts of things were being um, utilized on the car. So they would put sensors on the car mm -hmm. and the data gathering was taking place. Mm -hmm. And then the engineer would analyze all that data. And then the crew chief would make the changes based on what the engineer said really needs to happen. Along with the feedback and input of the driver, you don't take the driver completely out of the equation, but sure. the data is repeatable, right? The driver can say one thing, and the car could be doing a completely different thing, right? So who's the crew chief yeah. going to believe? Right. But if the crew chief sees the real data in terms of like how far the, the car is traveling or how much it's leaning over in the turns or how fast you're getting on the accelerator or how hard you're getting on the brake, that the data doesn't lie. And so it's yeah. a proof positive to the crew chief that this is what we need to do to make you faster. And I embrace that. I was like right, working right alongside with the engineers affecting those changes, you know, talking to the engineer about, you know, yeah, I see that data showing this and that's exactly what I feel in the car and that sort of thing. And so I loved it. A lot of drivers at that time early on were just, you know, they couldn't understand it. They were intimidated by the technology. They were used to sure. doing things the old fashioned way. Yep, they were yep, used to yep. saying, well, I need a round of wedge and, you know, or I need a, you know, 50 pound heavier spring, or I need a half pound less air pressure. And that's what the crew chief would react to. In my instance, in my case, yeah, I was telling them what the vehicle was doing, you know, in the corner. It was maybe loose on entry, which means the back end wants to pass the front end, or it was tight on exit, which means you can turn the wheel as much as you want and the car still wants to go straight. But mm. the fact is that I embraced the technology, and that was something that I was comfortable with completely because all those years at HP. I mean, we were basically working on technology every day. So when sure. I saw computers and stuff entering the fray, I was like, I'm happy. Wow, man, that's that's uh, that's incredible. It, it kind of sounds like what's going on in sports and football with analytics and, mm -hmm. you know, the analytics department and and listening to the, the data, you know, pay, and making decisions. Are you going to go for it on fourth down or things like that based upon the numbers? And and there's old school and then there's the, the analytics guys and there's usually a little bit of a rub. But it seems like you didn't have that issue. Uh, you embraced it and, it and it probably gave you an advantage, wouldn't you say? I would definitely say so. I mean, like you were saying, there weren't many drivers coming out of engineering school getting into racing, you know. <laughs> On the circuit right now, there's only one other driver with an engineering degree who actually, I guess, really went through college, and that was uh, Ryan Newman. Mm 
And oh, he came sir. out of Purdue with a mechanical engineering degree. And I'm mm. sure that that helped him with regard to his progress and yeah. um, ability to, you know, be successful. But a lot of these guys that came up as drivers, you know, they came up turning a wrench in, you know, their father's garage or in some shop or something like that. And yeah. next thing you know, they're, you know, trying to apply themselves as a driver mm. and not really, you know, learning the new stuff. They learned mm. it the way their father did it or, you know, their yeah. uncle did it or, you know, whatever the case is. They weren't looking at computer screens. Now, right. as it is right now, all these drivers are using technology, of course, and they're yep. using um, simulations. There is a mm -hmm. program called iRacing, which mm -hmm. is what you utilize at home to get used to the rhythm of a track and how the track flows and where the corners are and how hard you can go into these corners. And the approximation to the real thing is unbelievable. It can't obviously mimic really the G-forces you know, even though some of these simulators have, you know, full motion with the seat and all that stuff with shock absorbers, but it's still not the same thing, but it's darn yeah. close. And it wow. gives you a decided advantage once you get to the racetrack because you, you already know, you're, you're already primed and you already know what to expect, right? Yeah. And so these kids that are coming up and racing now, I mean, they're just computer junkies, man. They're just spending mm. hours upon hours of time doing eye racing because they have their setup with their steering wheel and right. their pedal system and all that kind of stuff. And they're learning the tracks and they're not wrecking cars because if they crash, all they do is hit the reset button. You know, <laughs> like, uh -oh, this is going to cost a lot of money. <laughs> I learned I love the hard knocks. Yeah, but what I love about it. you? You talk about, you know, and embrace technology as it appears. Do you use it a lot as well in your profession? Yeah, we use a lot of technology. I mean, and it's, it's more and more every year. I mean, just the, the, the computers, the the video, uh, it used to be VHS and it went to beta. Now it's all digital. And then the analytics piece is the, the biggest part now. And just, you know, like uh, score score probability and, and things like that and uh, drive start analysis. And like people are making decisions, you know, do you go for it on fourth down? You know, do you, uh, you know, do you kick, do you punt? I mean, all those types of things is, is all data driven now. And, and Wow. And uh, there's some coaches that embrace it. And there are some coaches that, you know, just want to do it by feel. Like uh, what you're talking about is kind of uh -huh. just how we always done it. And there's no reason to change. I've won a lot of games doing it this way, you know. And so, but a lot of the, um, like in the NFL, like a lot of the owners, and that's what they want to see because a lot of the owners that come from a business background and whether it's hedge funds or whatever, and they're looking for data. They, mm -hmm. want, they want, you know, data. And so that kind of trickles down to the college level as well. But it seemed like you were certainly ahead of your time in that regard. But if you could take me to um, something struck me, what you said earlier about you're eight years old, you go to the track and you're there's no one there that looks like you. <laughs> so what was it like being one of the few, very few black African-American NASCAR drivers you know, on that circuit? Like, what was that like for you? It was very lonely, trust me on that. I mean, I'm telling you, since the 1960s, there have been only four black drivers to race at the top level of NASCAR, which is the Cup Series. There was Wendell Scott, who you might know from the movie Grease Lightning. Grease Lightning. Um, what is the movie? Uh, God, what was this? All right, now I'm putting my foot in my mouth. It's not Grease Lightning. Um, the, I can't remember, but it was with Richard Pryor and Pam Greer. And uh, it was his story. And so there was a movie done on him Mm. And it was very successful. But he ran in the 60s and the early 70s. A guy by the name of Willie T. Ribs ran in the 80s for a couple of races. I ran a handful of races in the mid 2000s. Mm. And then Bubba Wallace is now on the scene. So there's been yeah. only four of us in the wow. 60 years from 1960 to 2020 that have raced at the top level of NASCAR. Four. That's it. So I'm in a, in a very exclusive club. 
And, yeah. you know, it's clear that it was exclusive by just how I was received. Yeah. You know, while I was respected in the garage area, fortunately, mm. amongst my competitors, mm. you know, a lot of the fans truly did not embrace me. I would be sometimes booed before driver introductions or during driver introductions before the race. Mm. And, you know, I can remember many a time where I was going from like the parking lot to the actual racetrack, walking amongst, you know, <laughs> some of these NASCAR, you know, traditional fans yeah. and made them feel very uncomfortable. You, I've heard, you know, the N-word muttered under breath. I've seen the conversation stop and the fingers pointed at me and stuff like that. And I'm like, you know, I'm one guy out of a sea of them. So it's not as if I could do anything about it. But the good thing is that, you know, despite that story I just told you, nobody ran up to me and waved a Confederate flag in my face or, you know, called me the N-word to my face. You know, I've heard sure. some stuff muttered, but, you know, nobody has come and done that. So yeah. to the fans, you know, credit, there was nothing overt, but there was a whole lot of, you know, subliminal stuff that was going on sure. around there. But uh, sure. no, I mean, I not really didn't care about it. I knew it was there and I just had to take it, you know, put it out of my mind, compartmentalize, and realize I was there to do a job, to race this car, this truck, as fast as I possibly could, and to, you know, try to beat everybody who was out there. And, um, you know, all those things that were, that were issues were things that came along with the territory. Sure. But, you know, I didn't let that spin me out. I didn't let them get the best of me. You know, I realized that when they're waving their Confederate flags, that was something that was in their history, their Southern mm -hmm. heritage, as I've been told. And I just kind of looked at it as, you know, they were just fairly ignorant. They just didn't know any better as far as that was concerned, because, you know, <laughs> that war is the, few, the history. You know, why are we waving Confederate flags? We should all be, you know, waving the American flag. Mm. And I applaud NASCAR for having recently banned the Confederate flag from all of their events. And so that's a really big step. That was something that I talked about in the mid 2000s that I wasn't mm. comfortable with was the Confederate flag. But, you know, everything then kind of fell on deaf ears. NASCAR wasn't ready to change. Mm -hmm. NASCAR is now at a point with the unfortunate passing, you know, George Floyd and Ahmaud yeah. Arbery and Rihanna Taylor. People are listening now. They're becoming more receptive. Mm -hmm. And so now, you know, was the time for NASCAR to change. And Bubba Wallace, who basically challenged them to do so, mm -hmm. um, convinced them that was the right thing to do. And they did that. And that was something I never thought I would see. I really didn't. Just like I never thought I would see Barack Obama be a president and be our president. Right. I just never thought I would see, the, you know, the banning of the Confederate flag. That was kind of yeah. like, you know, you know, apple pie and Chevrolet to them. So um, sure. for that to happen, it was really a proud moment as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, you know, all the stuff that I had to endure just made it all that much easier for Bubba, you know, and I'm glad mm -hmm. of that. Just like, you know, those that came before me made it easier for me. I made it easy for him and yeah. it allowed him to open that door to great change. And I'm just proud of him for what he's done. Yeah, no doubt. Where, where, who, where'd you get your support from in turn, you know, like when you were having these challenges, breaking into the series, you know, coming on the scene, you know, there's obviously, you know, there's racism, the undercurrents of it, you know, there's no one look like you. I mean, I know you got family, but in terms of whether sponsors, did you have, uh, crew chief. I mean, who were the people that were in your corner that were like, to say, "Hey, we got your back. Let's let's go do this." Or did you feel like you were pretty much on your own? You know, I pretty much felt like I was on an island. But my real mm. support structure is my family. You know, mm. my mother and my father, my wife. Um, you know, they help shoulder the load. And you know, I can't thank them enough for having done that because there were some times where I just wanted to go postal. 
and, you know, be an angry black man and have them, you know, look at me and go, yeah, that's, that's how they are, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But I've always held myself with, you know, high esteem and professionalism mm -hmm. and, you know, just looked at people as this is how they were brought up, you know, with regard to racism and stuff, that's not something that you're born with. That's something mm -hmm. that's learned, right? Mm -hmm. I see that because, you know, my teenage sons, when they were young, I saw how when they would play with their friends, they were all just playing. They didn't care about color. They were just having fun, right? And then as they got older, all of a sudden differences started to come out, right? And, you know, some of their friends were like that were white were like, well, let me touch your hair and, you know, just all those things that right. all of a sudden become more um, um, prominent to their discovery. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, of course, when they hear what goes on in their households, you know, mm -hmm. that's a huge influence to them as well, right? So sure. um, I, I tried not to let some of those feelings that they had and those beliefs that they have derail me you know sure. i couldn't let me beat me or let yeah. them beat me I, and yeah. i definitely didn't want to beat myself by yeah. letting that get into my head it was yeah. all a matter of like i said before that word compartmentalize you got to compartmentalize you know if you yeah. keep worrying about things that happened in the past or right. things that didn't work out for you you know then all it's going to do is wear on you that's going to eat at you and you right. can't go forward when you got that burden that you're continuing to shoulder so yeah. you know I was there, like I said before, to do a job. I was very fortunate that I didn't take no for an answer because believe me, I was discouraged almost every step of the way mm -hmm. to try and become a professional race car driver. It's like, you guys don't race. Um, why would you, why are you here? You know, that sort of thing. I mean, I, I got to admit that from their perspective, I came out of nowhere because the NASCAR environment was all base, basically, you know, entrenched in the deep South, right? Yeah. They all knew each other. They all grew up racing against each other, whether it be mm -hmm. on dirt and then through the feeder ranks, you know, through the yeah. series. Here I am up in Northern California on the West Coast, right? You know, yeah. <laughs> um, as white collar as you want to be in, you know, <laughs> professional, you know, conducting project meetings and with, you know, <laughs> a dozen engineers and stuff like that. Yeah. And then I show up out of nowhere, effectively. It's kind of like Days of Thunder, where Tom Cruise <laughs> rolls into the speedway to test a stock car on a motorcycle having an Indy car or open wheel background. And, you know, when he comes up to the team, they're all looking at him like, uh, you know, uh, have you ever driven a stock car? And he's like, no. And, you know, well, these things will probably bite you and you, you don't need you probably trying to do this. And he's like, mm. just let me do it. I was kind of the same way. Yeah. I came out basically from nowhere. They didn't even know who I was. They never heard of me. Then I'm a black guy on top of that. You know, and then I'm coming <laughs> over here through the high end of NASCAR. I started out right. in the series. Well, actually, my first race was in the Xfinity series, which is a car series. And then I went into the truck series where I made most of the name for myself. And then I ran some cup races. But what I'm trying to say is there are three top national touring series in mm -hmm. NASCAR. The truck series, the Xfinity mm -hmm. series, and the cup series. And I bypassed all the stepping stones to get to the top levels, right? Usually you go through like late models and K&Ns and before that, Bandoleros and um, uh, Legends cars. You know, there's a whole um, ladder that you climb to get to the point where you're supposedly ready to race stock cars. I bypassed all that. I had never even raced on an oval before I came to NASCAR. Never raced on an oval. All of my racing was done on a road course, turning right, turning left, three and a half, four mile length tracks. My first test in a stock car, my very first test in a stock car was on a quarter mile high bank short track, which is called a bull ring with a figure eight infield. When I mean by figure eight, they would run 
demolition derby stuff in there. <laughs> and I was looking at this track like, y'all actually race here? <laughs> that, so, is, that is fascinating to me. Like how, okay, this seems like a simple question. How were you able to come out of nowhere and basically bypass all the, it, it's almost like me maybe coming out of the out of the high school ranks and 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 becoming you know up right up in the power five how did you do that with all the obstacles in front of you as well you know luck hard work determination and a lot of natural driving ability i mean mm. i'll tell you i was never formally trained as a race car driver in my whole career you know even when i road race i was never formally trained i never went to a racing school i never went to a stock car school i just learned you know i watched people and I tried, you know, and I just was a student of the sport. And I would go out and talk to people that were doing it. What are you doing here? What are you doing there? You know, what can I do to improve? I was just a sponge. And I kept trying to absorb everything I could. But at the end of the day, I was given a gift, Mel. I was just, you know, a God-given gift. You know, there are those that can race at eight-tenths, but very few that can race at ten-tenths. What I mean by eight-tenths is that you can be good but to be great, it's really very difficult because the, the margin of error becomes razor thin. And, yeah. you know, there are a lot of guys that can go out there and do a good job, but to just go out there and become a professional, it's very, very difficult, you know, because you are proactive. You are not reactive to what's going on out there. You know, for the most part, kind of what's going to happen and how far you can push things before you push them over the edge. I mean, anybody can go out there and just put their foot to the floor and crash, you know, <laughs> but sure. that's not going to get you any longevity in racing. You know, you will be out of there in a heartbeat. You have to know how to push to the edge without overstepping it. And that's something that's very hard to be, that's very hard to teach. It's something that's innate. It's a feel. It's a, it's a gift that you're given. It's, mm -hmm. you know, seat of the pants feel. It's like, you know, you're either, either given it or you're not. And so for me to transition from racing sports cars and long tracks, turning right and left to getting into a bull ring or into an oval and just turning left and trying to stay off concrete walls and, you know, racing inches from uh, apart from each other at 200 miles an hour. It's just, I, I can't explain it. It was just, I was born to do it. I was, you know, given a gift to do it. Wow. What, what was the scariest moment that you can remember that you had on a, on a track? I'll tell you what, the scariest moment is a moment that I don't remember. And what I'm talking mm. about is in 2004 at Texas Motor Speedway, I was in a wreck that took place at a probably uh, my impact of, with the wall is probably about 130, 140 miles an hour. Mm. But I was knocked out. I was only suffered one concussion in my career. And that was it. I was going through the corner side by side with another competitor. And in the truck series, what happens is if you are too close to the other competitor, if you're just, you know, too close to them, almost hitting each other. You can, the truck on the outside can take the air off the spoiler of the truck on the inside. And my competitor took the air off the back end of my truck, which caused me to go loose. And so I overcorrected trying to catch the slide. And he and I both went into the wall. The good thing about all of that situation is that by that time, NASCAR had instituted safer walls or safer barriers, which are basically mm -hmm. walls that compress. They mm -hmm. are, it's a buffer between you and the concrete wall, right? Mm -hmm. Because if I hit the concrete wall, I very well may not be here right now. Mm. And the person who, you know, unfortunately I owe, you know, these safety improvements to is Dale Earnhardt. I don't know if you know or, or heard of him, but yep. he was, you know, between him and, and Richard Petty, 
probably the two most famous NASCAR drivers mm-hmm. in NASCAR. Yep. And Dale Earnhardt lost his life in 2001 at Daytona, almost on the last lap of the race. Mm-hmm. And he was not even going that fast, but he hit the wall at the wrong angle. And he suffered what's called a vascular, vascular head fracture, which means that he snapped his neck at the base of his skull because mm-hmm. he hit it at just the right impact to do so. And his belts probably weren't that tight from what the, you know, the um, reports said and the discovery and investigation indicated. Mm-hmm. But once NASCAR real that realized that if Dale Earnhardt, who was from all intents and purposes invincible, could lose so, his life, then we need to step up our safety protocols. And so as a result of that, they formed and created safer walls or safer barriers. And they also created something called the Hans device, which stands mm-hmm. for head and neck system. And that is basically a collar that goes around your your neck and your shoulders that fastens to your helmet, okay? And right there, it limits the amount of movement that your head can have so that you can't snap your neck, right? Mm. You can't break your neck. And so as a result of those two technological advances, um, they had those instituted at Texas Motor Speedway. Mm. And even though myself and my competitor went into the wall, neither one of us were seriously hurt. Now, I suffered a concussion, like I said, and had I not looked at the video of the race afterwards, I would have never believed that I was out because the only thing I remember is being in the ambulance, wondering why I was in the ambulance going for a ride (laughs) to the hospital. I was like, what am I doing here? Where's the race? You know, I'm like, right, right, right. It was nothing worse for wear, right? But I looked at the video of the crash and I saw my truck come to, you know, a, a a screeching stop and you know just dragging parts and pieces and i saw how i dropped the window net i took off my helmet i put on my racing cap i crawled i I got out of the truck on my own under my own power i actually waved to the fans as i walked (laughs) into the ambulance and i don't remember any of that (laughs) again i'm the worst of the wear (laughs) wow that's 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 incredible you mentioned how NASCAR, how they progress from the safety aspect. Um, yeah. And you did, you mentioned, you mentioned earlier that you were kind of surprised or maybe you, you didn't think you would ever see NASCAR ban the Confederate flag. What do you think has attributed to that? You know, why do you think that that happened? Is it NASCAR? Have they become more progressive? Is it a different leadership? Is it uh, maybe something that the sponsors called for what's your take on that yeah again i think it's more that nascar was open to change their ears were open as a result of the unfortunate deaths that you know has created a movement across this country and nascar i think just really sat up took notice and listened to bubba because bubba bubba uh, wallace was the one who said to nascar we need to get rid of these flags and i'll tell you when I first saw racing on TV when I was really young, like, you know, eight years old or whatever. And I watched ABC's Wide World of Sports. And I would watch the Daytona 500 and the Southern 500, you know, from Darlington and the Talladega 500. All I saw were these Confederate flags just blowing in the breeze. And I just looked at that stuff and I just shook my head like I'm doing right now. I was like, Mm -hmm. why would anybody want to subject themselves to that environment who's not white? And sure enough, it was just nothing but a sea of white people in the stands. You know, the crowd was all white, you know, and that's what I would see on the broadcast. And when I saw the um, pit reporter talking to a driver, they didn't look like me. They sure didn't sound like me with their Southern drawls and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, 
I just can't understand why anybody would want to run around in a circle at 200 miles an hour trying to stay off a concrete wall. And the, so who, who would have thought that I would wind up being a NASCAR? <laughs> but, um, no, getting back to your, you know, to your question, the Confederate flag is a complete turnoff to making the sport more inclusive. And NASCAR realized that they needed to make the sport more inclusive. Their traditional Southern fan base is tapped out. I was fortunate enough to be racing in NASCAR in the mid-2000s, which is what the high time, the high tide of the, of the sport. When I was racing, you know, on the cup, at the cup level, you know, there were 120, 140, 150,000 people in the stands. I mean, that would be a typical, you know, attendance number for, for a race there. Now, you know, well, pre-COVID-19, NASCAR was taking stands out because they were happy or lucky, I should say, if they could get 40, 45,000 people in the stands, you know, it was dying on the vine because realize, that traditional fan that. base, oh yeah, that traditional fan base was, you know, aging out and they were not able to capture the interests of the millennials. You know, mm. if the kids want to go to a race, then the parents, you know, want to support the kid going to a race and we all do a family project or, you know, yeah. outing and we go to the races, right? But yeah. The, their their kids were not interested. They were more interested in, you know, hand tech, smartphones and all that kind of stuff, whatever it is they were doing, but they just had no appreciation for racing. And a lot of that is unfortunate, but as a result of the fact that with technology, these kids can't race on, can't maintain their own cars anymore. They can't work on them, right? When I was growing up, I did my own wrenching, right? I'm changing spark plugs, changing oil, changing radiators, changing water pumps. You know, like I said, swapped out my suspension for racing suspension. I did all that myself. Mm -hmm. These kids can't hardly work on cars anymore because to maintain them, you got to plug them up to a computer for their diagnostic, you know, their diagnostic mm -hmm. test. Yeah, and everything sure. is done basically that way. Sure, yeah. you can do some things, you know, but it's kids look at cars now as just a utility um, vehicle, you know, mm -hmm. as a tool. I mean, mm. that's how my kids look at it. You know, my kids are in their teens and they have no appreciation for working on cars and they have no desire. It's not mm. interesting to them. And so NASCAR saw a huge gap in terms of what was going on with their fan base. And they realized that to continue to grow and be quote unquote America's sport, they had to make the sport welcoming and inclusive. Mm. And with those flags blowing around, there was no way they were going to get anything other than their standard typical, you know, um, demographic. Mm -hmm. And so they knew that as the um, numbers show, that majority is going to start eventually becoming the minority. Mm -hmm. And they probably realize that as well. You got to, you know, you look at the numbers and, you know, mm -hmm. and the statistics and, you know, all the, the things that measure what's going on with regard to, you know, the demographic of the country. Sure. There's a whole lot more black and brown out there and what mm -hmm. have you than there is just them. And so they're, they're looking at it from a long-term perspective. You, you know yeah. what? You're darn right we need to make this sport inclusive. Mm. That's a great idea. Let's start with that flag. And as a result of that, there have been a lot of folks that have come on social media and talked about mm. like, hey, I'm going to take in a NASCAR race and such. And yeah. I'm thinking that that's great because as the word gets out and they realize how much fun it is to be a part of the sport, not just yeah. being a driver, but just to enjoy the sport. Um, there's nothing like, you know, 40 cars going by you at 200 miles an hour. It's right. unbelievable. Sure. Sure. The feel of it, the rumble yep. of it, it's just, yep. it'll blow your hat off. It's, it's amazing. I've taken families, black families to NASCAR races mm -hmm. only because I'm an insider and they know they're safe with me and I know what mm -hmm. I'm doing, where to go, sure. where not to go and all that kind of stuff. 
um, they said, Bill, that was a phenomenal experience. Next time, you know, you want to go to, you know, you're going to a NASCAR race, let me know. I want to go again and stuff like yeah. that. It blew me away. I just didn't think that they would have so much fun. But yeah. to a man, just about everybody who's experienced it has loved it. It was just a matter of it being comfortable to them. Yeah, sure. You know, I can I can uh, vouch for that because when I coached in Jacksonville, I went to Daytona and I went. It was like a dual race, uh-huh. and um, you know, I, I got the the little headsets where you can tune yep. into the the different deal. I took one of my one of my sons, and the it it's nothing like watching on TV. No, the, the sound, the speed, and the smell of the rubber, the 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 fuel. Mm-hmm. incredible i mean it was like i'm saying to myself this is i i like this i mean this, this is good <laughs> and i read joe gibbs's book racing the wind years ago and so i was intrigued by it but you're right you know when bubba wallace spoke up and then they decided to ban the confederate flag you know i went on online i ordered a bubba wallace t-shirt and a hat <laughs> cool. you know and i signed up on the nascar on the espn deal signed up on the nascar site and you know getting the updates and all that and well, and I, I, you know, I was like, hey, I got to get, you know, we got to get Bill Lester on. But so you, you're thinking it was more of a business move to grow the sport or yeah, it was, a, it was I, I an opportunity believe, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely believe that was incentive to do it, you know, mm-hmm. um, and the time was right. They could justify yeah. doing it without yeah. like alienating, you know, everybody that was their core fan base, you know. Sure. But they realized they could see it. Everybody could see what was going yeah. on in terms of the number of spectators dwindling mm-hmm. and, you know, grandstands that were put in to get more people back when I was racing were now being taken out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those that weren't being taken out, they were being covered with, you know, sponsor banners. So it didn't look like nobody was there and, sure, and what happened. Sure. So yeah, for the growth and betterment yeah. of the sport, they had to be inclusive. They had to make it a welcoming environment. It was right. a business decision. I mean, at the end of the day, I believe that a number of those uh, folks there, you know, over in Daytona believe that it was high time to get rid of that Confederate flag. But I don't think that unless what has happened recently has happened, they would have done. It. I'm not convinced they would have done. It. Sure. How do you think Bubba, Bubba Wallace is handling everything it, it, from the outside looking in? You know, it seems like he's doing a heck of a job. It's a lot of pressure on him and he's trying to p- compete and win. And yeah. what he's got, you know, he's got these other um, these other pressures, you know, daily. You're somewhat on the inside. How, how do you think that he's doing with all of this? I think he's doing extremely well, but it's burning him out. And, you know, he said, said as much. And, you know, yeah. he and I, we know each other. We've talked on a number of occasions. And mm. when he um, basically moved the Black Lives Matter movement car onto the track at Martinsville, you know, I just mm. told him, I said, man, that's great. I sent him a text and, you know, told him that uh, I was proud of him and that if there's anything I could do to help him or whatever, you know, just let me know. And he got back to me and he told me how much he appreciated it. And, uh, you know, I'm, he's sincere. He'll reach out to me, but mm. I don't believe he feels he needs to. I think he has, just like I did, a very strong support system, family support right. system. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, his team is behind him. Um, his crew is behind him. The NASCAR garage is behind him. And that was made evident, you know, before the race at Talladega, when they pushed his car up to yeah. the front of yeah. the line. Yeah. I mean, I was floored. I was like, yeah. are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, that was I a beautiful I thing. Know. I, I just. I know. Yeah. So I think he's doing a tremendous job because I can tell you, Mel, since all of this has really occurred, I've done upwards of 25 interviews myself. I mean, CNN and Fox Sports, NPR and, you know, international BBC, 
you know, I've done yeah. all sorts of stuff. You know, you and I talking, you know, yeah. it's yeah. been overwhelming and I'm not even, I'm on the periphery. So I can only imagine what it's like. I mean, he's been doing like um, late night shows and yep. I mean, just uh, I'm overwhelmed. I can't even name him all because it's, it's a mind mill, but um, yeah. it's, he's done a great job. He's, he's, he's handled himself really well. And I like to think that he's just done a really good job of growing into his skin and, and becoming the man that he has become. Mm-hmm. I saw Bubba when he first came into the sport, you know, and I was like, I told you, uh, back, back in the mid 2000s and he was pretty much a kid right because this is like 15 years ago whatever right. it's only 20 years now so i've seen him kind of like growing up in the sport and he had really no awareness of you know who he was or what was going on he was just like yeah. you know bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and you know and, and, and now i see what he's grown to become mm-hmm. and i just i commend him i think he's done a tremendous job of shouldering that burden because we didn't sign up for that as race car drivers we absolutely didn't we signed mm-hmm. up to race and to win and to uh, hold your sponsor in you know the highest esteem and regard and represent them well, represent you know your sport well. That's what we signed up for, right? We didn't sure. sign up for interview after interview after interview after interview. <laughs> I'm kind of the same thing. We're putting spins right. on, of course, but it's a story that is way overdue because yeah. this change is way overdue, and yeah. I'm just so happy. That I've, I'm here witnessing it and seeing it because, again, I just never thought I would. What do you think NASCAR needs to do further, you know, beyond banning the Confederate flag? What do you think the next steps can be or should be or will be um, to make the sport more inclusive, to, you know, connect more with, you know, people of color and the, the, to, the, to grow the sport? Well, again, they have to bend. I believe they should bend over backwards, making the sport more welcoming folks mm-hmm. of color i mean i don't know what it is they should be doing whether it's you know reaching out to black organizations or whatever the case mm-hmm. is but they need to encourage us to come out there and experience it because now the door is open it really yeah. wasn't open before it was but it wasn't because the flag yeah. was there you know you know just as well as i am we see flags you know flowing in the green why would we come in and subject ourselves to that? that's like going to a football game and seeing the stars and bars flying all over place we wouldn't do that you're not gonna be yeah. comfortable there especially right. when, you know all of them are looking at us like we got two heads right so you know we wouldn't subject ourselves to that but they mm-hmm. need to put some steps and measures in, in place to make mm-hmm. it a more welcoming environment the step the confederate flag was just a first step sure but what i really do and want to do is challenge corporate america because motorsports runs on dollars it requires big sponsorship most people don't realize that a annual sponsorship for a cup car like Bubba Wallace's is an 18 to $20 million proposition a year. Mm, 18 that's to $20 big money. million. Dollars. That's big money. And that is something that the drivers by and large typically have to bring with them. The team owners are just providing the infrastructure. They're providing the cars, the crew, the transporters, you know, tractor trailers, the, mm. the, the uh, shop, but they are not, really on the hook for providing the sponsorship because there are so many of them that come from wealth and privilege that they don't have to. And so mm. that is a huge disqualifier for us because we're not coming from that same wealth and privilege mm. and we are not gaining the same access to capital that they are. Those decisions mm. in the boardrooms and you know um, offices of the C-suite of corporate America are mostly made by folks that don't look like you and me that are doing the same thing over and over. They're not going to take a chance on, you know, typically bringing in something that might ruffle some feathers. Oh, 
black driver well you know that might ruffle you know our consumers i'm like really we consume just as much as everybody else does if not more in a lot of cases right, right, but, you know, right. they have this old mentality that you know, most of these drivers are white and the fan base is all white. Well, yeah, the fan base has been white because you know how we do. If we don't see anybody that looks like us or sounds right. like us and is doing well, why are we there? Other, if there's not a Bubba Wallace out there or somebody looks like me out there, it's a it's 40 cars running around in the circle. Sure, when we can sure. identify with that person, that athlete, that individual, it makes mm-hmm. it real, right? It's like yep. what Tiger Woods did with golf. What Venus yep. and Serena Williams and Arthur Ashe did with tennis. Yep. It's that sort of scenario. We get Bubba with the right money, the right access to capital and a level playing field. Let's see what he can do. Because what most people don't realize is that he's not playing on a level playing field. He's racing with one hand effectively tied behind his back. Mm. That car, that team, that organization needs more sponsorship. Mm. In corporate America, it just has not been forthcoming. When he had that... Um, car at Talladega that they pushed forward, it had on his fire suit, Richard Petty Motorsports on, mm. you know, Brandy, not a corporate right. sponsor. That was it. If you, at, if you looked at the car, it had Victory Junction on it. That's a non-profit organization that was put on there because there's no real sponsorship on that car, that race. Wow. All these other cars got all that sponsorship on it. They got that 18 yeah. to 20 million. I think they were probably running at a fraction of what the sponsorship that's required is. And when I say required, I say it because you can't want for anything in this sport. Money buys speed. Mm-hmm. Money buys you the best equipment. It buys yep. you the best people. It provides you the best opportunities for success. It buys yep. you the best, you know, motors and, you know, aerodynamics, you know, wind tunnel time. All that stuff gets eaten up. You wonder where all that money goes? Believe me, transporting that traveling circus all across the country with all those people, that adds up real fast. But yep. getting back to you know the fact that the driver has to bring that sponsorship more often than not is crazy. Here's your analogy. It's like telling LeBron James, you know, hey, LeBron, we want you to play for you know, the Lakers. We want you to play for us. But, you know you got to bring 18 to $20 million to be part of the team. You know, I know what you can do. You can dribble. You got handles. Where's your checkbook? That's what racing is. That's what professional racing is. I don't care if it's NASCAR, IndyCar, sports cars, drag racing. You got to have that checkbook as a driver for the most part, unless you're a household name. If you're a household name, Mm. you can get by. Jimmy Johnson's not bringing a checkbook, you know, Um, you know, some of the other guys uh, out there aren't bringing checkbooks, but, for the most part, man, if you know you're not like I said, household name, then you got to bring the helmet and the money. Uh, how do you think? How do you think NASCAR can get more African American drivers, you know, in the game, you know, more in the in the sport? Um, because it just seems like there's some huge hurdles and financial implications. And again, you know, uh, there's not the representation that that black kids can see. You know, is it, right. is it, is it, is it, uh, are there initiatives in the pipeline to get more uh, black drivers in, in the sport? Yeah. As a matter of fact, um, you know, what NASCAR has relied upon in the past is what's called the drive for diversity or D for D program. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's had some success. The fact is Bubba Wallace is a product of the D for D program, you know, mm-hmm. but he's one of the very few, very sure. few. They've had two other guys that have been successful from the D for D program. Mm-hmm. Guy by the name of um, Daniel Suarez, who's Hispanic Latino, who is struggling for sponsorship. He's in a back marker team. He's got the same problem that Bubba's got, you know, and it's crying shame because you would think that um, being the only Hispanic Latino 
would bring some sponsors to the fore, but it's been woefully lacking. And the other guy who was part of the D for D program shot himself in the foot. You probably don't know who this guy is, but um, oh, what's his name? Oh gosh. Now I forgot his name. I'm on a blank. He, he went on and um, <laughs> blew his opportunities by using the N word on an iRacing type streamed mm. racing uh, program. Mm. And he, he just, just, he couldn't have done anything worse. As sure. a product of the Drive for Diversity program, using right. the N word like he did freely was a complete and absolute faux pas. He just tripped all over himself. And sure. so, you know, he has been suspended from NASCAR. And if he wants to come back, then he's going to have to go through some protocols, sensitivity training, diversity training, that sort of thing. But I don't know if he'll ever come back. But um, it's a shame I can't remember his name. I, I've, I've almost stricken him from my memory. I was so <laughs> what he did. But getting back to your question, the key thing is that exposure. You got to get that exposure at a very young age, Mm -hmm. just like you probably played football at a very young age. And I was young. Exactly. I was exposed to racing at a very young age, which allowed me to pursue that, you know, because if my father never took me to a race, I probably would have never become a race car driver. I would have just, it would have been too late for me to think that was something I could do. You know, but he set the hook that racing that that race that I went to set the hook. And so that allowed me to always think that I could pursue it. You know, that gave me the desire to pursue it. And so what really needs to happen is we need to have some more grassroots efforts Mm -hmm. to get more exposure in the black community, you know, Hispanic, Latino community, what have you, to gain more exposure to the sport. That's what the key thing is. We really need to do that. And when you say, are there initiatives and stuff like that? The fact is, I'm working with a group of guys, seven other guys, and we are trying to do just that. So we're not at a point where we're ready to launch, but we are working to provide that infrastructure so that we can gain or give that exposure and Mm -hmm. set that hook with more of us so that we can look at it as something that we can aspire to do. So that's that's the answer to the question. We need to get them in early. We need to groom them through the ranks. So that when the opportunity, you know, presents itself, we have people that are qualified that can do it. We have some young brothers and sisters that are ready to race. Well, as we close, um, I understand that you're working on a, a memoir. You, you, you're yeah. writing a book. And that what, is, there's some truth to that. that yeah, and what, a, what's the, what was the inspiration behind that? You know what? Whenever I've told my story, people said, wow, that's so motivational. I'm inspired to do it. You know, you left this great career at 37 to do something you didn't know if you were going to be successful at and, you know, lived your dream. And yeah, I did it. You know, I believed in myself and I took chances. I got out of my comfort zone and all that sort of thing. And I made it happen. And just people just told me by and large that they were just inspired and motivated. And I was like, you know what, if I didn't tell my story, that would be on me. That would be a shame. That'd be a tragedy. This is a story that can help people. This can, can, can motivate them. I have basically identified eight keys eight traits that made me successful, allowed me to pursue my dream. And I identify those and I work on helping to explain these things to folks through my racing backdrop, you know, through the things that I experienced in racing that I applied these techniques and skills towards Mm -hmm. that allowed me to, at the end of the day, live my dream to become a professional race car driver. And the title of the memoir coming out in February of next year, right at Black History Month and right before the Daytona 500 is called Winning in Reverse. And it's called that because, as I explained to you earlier, I did everything backwards. I lived my life in reverse. 
I didn't get the go-kart early. I didn't yep. start out, you know, at a young age. I started out late. I went straight to full-size cars. And the crazy thing about my story is I never raced go-karts competitively until my last racing that I did in 2012. I raced go-karts for Team USA in international karting competition, believe it or not. <laughs> in Puerto Mayo, wow. Portugal. I was able to bring my whole family and everything. And I got to race in the uh, master's class, which is 36 years and up. I'm 50 years old already, so I'm already <laughs> at a disadvantage. I don't have years of karting experience, but I made it through the ranks of um, qualifications here in the States to become a representative of, of Team USA, and I raced go-karts in Europe. Wow. That, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to be the first one to, to buy that book for, for sure. That is it's just a fa- you have a fascinating story, and it's, I'm, I'm, I'm inspired. And very mo- mo- very motivating. Um, and as we close, uh, I usually do a word of the week uh, once a week. And so, uh, Bill, I'll, I'll ask you if there was one word that you could leave our country t- tonight, one word, what do you think that word would be? That would what? Describe our country right now? Or just one word that you, like, I, I'll, I'll you throw out a word like uh, inspiration or or humility or what would that one b- word be for you that you would want to leave? like for our country this evening, if you could? Well, I mean, if I was to characterize it, I would just say disarray. And Mm. I would wish that it was a more uplifting message, but Mm. I just see what's going on and we're in disarray. And Mm. I hope we get back on track. I'm hopeful that that will take place. But unfortunately, disarray is the word that I would use. Hey, I I feel you on that, man. I really appreciate uh, you investing this time with us. I know you're you're busy and... um, I think this is your first IG Live. Yeah, know? man. And, and Listen, so now you're in now, you know what I mean? This is my baptism by fire. And I appreciate yeah, it, man. Yeah. I'm glad I was finally able to connect with you after not having done so initially, but we got it in. And yeah. I've enjoyed the conversation as well, Mel. Yeah, I enjoyed it, man. And we'll do it again one day. And uh, let's stay in touch, man. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Maybe we can do it at the launch of the book. We'll do it then. That's the Sounds best. good. You got a bit. Okay, buddy. We'll see you, man. Take care. All right, brother. Talk to you later. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in and joining Bill and I. Remember to be safe out there. If you like this podcast, make sure you share, review, and rate it. And never forget, go green. Thanks for listening to Tucker Talks. Like this podcast? Don't forget to share it, subscribe to it, and follow Coach Tucker on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Coach underscore M. Tucker. And remember, when it comes to your dreams, only labels have limits. What you can accomplish is limitless when you're relentless. Relentless.